Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special soundcast of the Dr. Christopher Hall Show and Podcast Magazine Sports Category Director, Neil Haley. And I'm excited first to welcome Nobel Prize nominated doctor, best-selling author and ER physician, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest today. Well, hey, Neil, you know, I'm doing great. I'm very excited about our guest because he is a very rare, very rare individual. All right, so let's go ahead and introduce him, please. We no problem. Well, you know, I'm very excited to introduce uh, one of the uh, rare individuals who had the opportunity to play professional uh, baseball and also professional football. An individual who uh, knows a lot about hard work, a motivational speaker, and wow, uh, I'm just very excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Edward Martin Smith. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Hall, what's your first question for Ed? Well, well, sure, no problem. Well, Ed, you know, tell us a little bit about kind of like um, where you grew up and just a little bit about your early childhood life and uh, and those kind of things that got you into interest in sports and into uh, baseball and also into football. Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised over in South Jersey, actually born in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, when I was about four and a half years Old, my mother and father uh, moved me and my brother to a small farm town in South Jersey. You don't normally think of farm towns in Jersey. Everybody considers Jersey like the city. But yeah, we moved to Browns Mills, New Jersey, and had the opportunity to grow up uh, in a very small community. Um, you know, uh, when we first moved into our, our house in 1974, uh, you know, the community was so new that my brother and I had the full run of the neighborhood. You know, a lot of houses weren't even built yet. So we were running through foundations, riding our bikes and things like that. And, you know, really a, a great uh, area to grow up in, uh, you know, through the late the 70s and 80s, you know, through my days in the high school. As far as sports, you know, it was like uh, I remember the first time my dad was driving us around. I was about five years old and we passed a little league field there in Browns Mills. And I got so excited, you know, I hadn't seen organized baseball before. And, you know, the first thing I said to my dad, you know, I, you know, I want to play baseball. And, you know, it's too late to join that season. But sure enough, the following year, you know, he got both my, he got my, my got me involved in Little League. And that was my first taste of baseball. And that, you know, over the course of years, that grew into a, a love of mine. You know, I had a passion for baseball. And I also played the other sports like, you know, kids do. You know, we used to run around the neighborhood getting our pickup football games together, going up to the local basketball courts to, you know, get some basketball in during the summer and different things like that. Um, you know, I, I tried football when I was about seven or eight years old, organized football, and I did not like it. I didn't have that aggressive nature yet. So what happened was I, you know, after like the first or second practice, I went home and told my mom, my mom that I didn't want to do that anymore. And she said, well, we don't quit things in this house, so you're going to have to finish this season. But afterwards, we can figure out something else for you. Uh, what happened was I ended up playing baseball all the way through in the high school. I started playing soccer from about nine years old till I was in a freshman in high school. And I played basketball as well all the way in. And then once I got to, to high school, things kind of took off for me in uh, the form of being a well-known athlete. In South Jersey, I had all kind of different honors and things like that, but that was the beginning of everything for me. Playing two sports, especially at that level, how did you know that you were good enough to play professional sports in both? 
both sports? Did you have that idea that were you like, because again, we all know how difficult it is to be part, involved in professional sports, to be a pro athlete, but to be a pro athlete in both sports, did you know you had that talent to be able to play in the next level of both? Well, when I was younger, everybody used to tell me about my talent, but I never, you know, my, my mom and dad raised both my brother and I'd be humble and, you know, I kind of respect our gifts. And, you know, being an athlete was my gift. You know, a lot of, you know, I, I'm enamored with other things that others can do, like play instruments and, you know, and act and, and you know, doctors, law, different things, talents that I didn't have. I was fortunate to be an athlete. And like I said, from an early age, people were telling me how good I was, but, you know, I always felt like I had to prove it. It wasn't one of those things where I took anything for granted. So by the time I got into high school, I was being highly recruited across the country uh, as a tight end. And, you know, and then I had all the scouts showing up toward my junior and senior year for baseball. You know, I knew it was a possibility what ended up happening. I ended up signing my letter of intent after going back and forth, back and forth, taking visits to schools for baseball and football and, you know, everybody trying to tell me what to do. I decided to, to follow my dream. And I ended up signing my letter of intent in my senior year to go to the University of North Carolina on a full baseball scholarship. And I was going to, I told them, you know, what I would do is I would play, I'd take a full baseball scholarship and I'd play football on the side because everybody thought that'd be a waste of time not to give football a shot. But I didn't want football to be the dictator of that. I didn't want to go to school on a football scholarship and then, we told I had to give baseball up. So I went that route. Uh, but then what happened, the Chicago White Sox came along in the seventh round of the uh, draft that year in 1987. They selected me and went back and forth and haggled with them, you know, over a little money and school in my contract and things like that. You know, as far as, you know, knowing I was going to be a professional athlete, I never knew it, but it sure was my dream. It's what I, you know, you know, a lot of kids grow up, and they, you know, they know early on, they want to be this or they want to be that. I knew what I wanted to be. I didn't know it was going to happen. And then the way my career kind of unfolded, which I'm sure we'll get into, because obviously I went uh, right out of high school and started playing professional baseball for nine years. And then, you know, the journey took a turn. But like I said, it was a lot of hard work, sleepless nights, a lot of uh, blood left on, the, on both fields uh, when it was all said and done. All right, Dr. Hall, your next question. Wow, this is an incredible, incredible story. And, you know, we know it takes a lot of discipline and hard work to, to, to be successful in those sports. And, and literally there's thousands of, of uh, uh, kids, hundreds of thousands of kids across the U.S. and the world who want to play those sports. And so, you know, what, what are some of those principles you would say, Ed, that, that these young people should have, you know, as they strive to, uh, to reach those heights that you, that you reached? Well, one of them is the discipline. You know, it's it's. I think it's an overused word sometimes, but I think it it comes down to if you want something, you have to, you know, kind of put yourself on that track and stay on that track. And a lot of times, you know, especially with young kids, they they get pulled in so many different directions. Uh, you know, they 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 want to do this, they want to do that, and I'm I'm all for experimenting and figuring out what you want to do once you decide on a path. You have to have that discipline to stay the course and then also expect those bumpy days and those bad nights. You know, uh, throughout my career, as I was trying to climb the minor league baseball ladder, man, you talk about some nights where I was questioning, you know, what did I get myself into or what would have happened if I would have went different routes? But, you know, you sometimes our, our biggest enemies are ourselves because we talk ourselves 
out of, you know, success and, and, and chasing those dreams, you know? So for me, you know, even through everything, you know, it was the discipline to, to stay the course, uh, the ability to sometime, you know, know if it's not good now, but I got to fight through this and, and just continue on. And then the one last thing I always tell people, you got to enjoy what the heck you're doing or what you're chasing. You know, I got to a point at the end of my baseball career after nine years, I was no longer enjoying it or having fun. And that's why I made the change and the pivot to, 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 to try football out. But, you know, once I decided it wasn't something that, that passion and that fire was gone, I didn't stick around just to do it because I was supposed to. And, you know, like I said, you got to love what you're doing. And because a lot of sacrifice comes with chasing those dreams. If you're not fully engaged in it, love it, dedicated to it, you know, you might as well go find something else to do because you're wasting your time. Now, when you talk about losing the passion for baseball, why? Why did you lose that passion? Neil, I had been playing for almost nine years, almost 10 years, and I got right to that point where I was in the middle of the steroid era. I played professional baseball all the way up to AAA from 87 to 95, which was my last season. And in the, the 94 seasons, when the strike happened for the big leaguers, you know, I finished my season uh, playing with the Chicago Cubs that year, uh, signed a contract with the Indians after going over and playing some winter ball in the Dominican Republic that, that winter, which was the winter of 94. And when I came back, the game itself was in chaos. You know, they obviously had first World Series missed since, you know, the, the, the days of World Wars, you know, that type of thing. And it was just a, a sad time for baseball. You know, I went to camp with the Indians honoring my AAA contract. And what happened was that whole spring training at the time, the manager, um, Mike Hargrove, every day was coming across from the big league uh, camp where they had the, you call them scab or replacement players, you know, playing in place of the big leaguers. And he was talking to me every day, trying to get me to come over. Ed, you know, I need you over here. You know, I want to give you a great look. This is, you know, this will be an opportunity for you. And, you know, once this all breaks, you know, this will be a feather in your cap. And, and I just kept telling him, Mike, I signed a AAA contract. I'm going to honor that. I'm not crossing any lines. And when the strike broke, you know, I started that season in AAA. And at one point, I was leading the American Association. I was in Buffalo with the Indians, leading the American Association in home runs average. I was hitting like 375 over the first month in chains, you know, on my way thinking this is the year I'm going to get noticed. And when the strike broke, they brought all the 40-man roster players back and, you know, it was a lot of chaos because a lot of guys had to be who had been promised things by big league, you know, major league baseball, you know, cross the line, come help us. We'll help you when it's all over. A lot of those guys got blacklisted. They were just exiled from the game. Meanwhile, I had done nothing wrong, but at the same time, I felt like I was punished. Uh, the Indians, at, at, for no apparent reason at all, you know, they toiled with me for a little while, left me up there in AAA. At one point, I sat on the bench for 14 days in a row didn't pinch hit, didn't play in a double header. I mean, I was literally just sitting there and they, even guys on my team were trying to figure out what is going on? Why are you not playing? I was like, I don't know. I can't tell you, you know, after the 15th or the 14th day, we get back from a road trip. They put me in the lineup. I have a good day. Get called into the manager's office after the game. And then, and they want to send me back to double a, uh, and you're talking about breaking. I was like breaking a horse's spirits, man. I, after everything I'd done to be, sent back down to double A and I ended up going back down there. And after about a month or so, you talk about losing the passion for the game, Neil, that's when I decided, Hey, it's been almost a decade. I've been chasing this. And if this is my reward 
and I'm now back on the bus tours riding. I was in went from riding or flying planes around the country when I was in uh, Buffalo. We're going to New Orleans, Oklahoma City, you know, different places. Now all of a sudden I'm in the Eastern League, 14 hour bus rides from um, uh, Canton, Ohio to Portland, Maine, and different, you know. And I, you talking about? I just knew it was time for to do something else. And, you know, like I said, I, I had some sleepless nights trying to figure out what was next. And, you know, bay, football came into my mind, even though I hadn't played football for almost, over a decade. But that was something that popped into my head. And I, as I say, the rest is history. I'm sure you'll ask me a question of how that all came to be. But that to answer that question of what broke my spirit, uh, that's what broke my spirit. Oh, my gosh. That's called politics. And people don't understand it. There's politics in everything in life. And there you go. Baseball, that's what happened. And you made the right decision for sure. All right, Dr. Hall, next question for Ed. Oh, well, no problem. You know, just kind of transitioning over, you know, like you said, played nine years and um, and, and just had to have the strength and, and willpower to transition over. And so actually ends up playing in NFL and, and has an NFC championship, you know, with the Falcons in the it's 1998. Now, tell us how that felt uh, to, to be on a championship team. Yeah, that was unbelievable. You know, to, to make the transition, you know, I, and it wasn't easy. I finished that baseball season in 95. I talked to my brother who was by then, uh, he's two years younger than me, but he was going into his third year in the NFL with the New Orleans Saints after playing four years at Notre Dame under Lou Holtz. And I called him one night and asked him about this crazy idea I had about getting back into football after, like like I said, a decade of not even playing the game, not in college or anything like that. And he encouraged me, and I took this shot. You know, I finished that baseball season. And the following that, the winter, the fall and winter of 1995, I actually came out here to Arizona, which is where I reside today. But I got in touch with some people, worked, uh, started to get my body into football shape, uh, thought I could get a couple workouts, somebody to take a look at me in the NFL, and that didn't work out. But the following spring, I ended up being presented to the World League at the time, which eventually turned into NFL Europe. But they heard about me, gave me one of the teams out of the eight teams, gave me a shot to come over there uh, to their camp in Atlanta, you know, quick workout. And if you look good, we'll keep you. If not, you know, we'll let you go on your way. I ended up going there today, camp, uh, which had already started. I was like a week and a half, almost two weeks late getting there but beat out some guys that were actually uh, NFL players had played in the league, you know, beat some of them out, went over to Europe, uh, played for the Birmingham or the, uh, the um, uh, uh, Frankfurt galaxy that season. And by the time I got back out, that season was a spring season. By the time I got back here in June, my agent was getting calls from the NFL, went into my first camp. And as you mentioned, you know, I spent that first year, uh, on the practice squad, in, practice squad in Washington, the next two years, I was on the active roster in Atlanta. And then on that 98 team, uh, the Dirty Birds, man, we actually went all the way to the Super Bowl. You know, it was an unbelievable, magical ride. Uh, ended up losing to the Broncos in that Super Bowl. But for me to just not that long ago be riding buses in minor league baseball and then all of a sudden be standing on the field, and I'll be honest with you, just – being on the field in general, but, you know, cause I remember days, it could have been a Sunday against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That felt like the Super Bowl for me because I, to, to make that change and be where I was after all the toiling in the minor leagues. But then like I said, you fast forward and to be coming out of a tunnel on a Super Bowl Sunday, 
was unbelievable. And I, I still get chills just talking about it and thinking about that whole experience, you know, not just that that Super Bowl, but the, the incredible ride, that two-year ride with the Falcons going from a seven. Well, actually, the first year I was here in 97, we started the season one and seven, finished seven and nine, and that started the roll next year, 14 and two, you know, NFC champions going to a Super Bowl. Unbelievable. And I, I tell you, man, you're talking about a lot of hard work that went into that and, you know, overcoming some what I call incredible odds uh, to be standing on that stage. Like I said, still gives me chills just to talk about it today. You know, it's you're, you talk about that Ed, and you talk about specifically enough the Super Bowl experience. What was your fondest memory of the, that week, the Super Bowl weeks, right? You know, the media week and then also leading up to finally the Super Bowl. Do you have some favorite memories? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, even after we won the NFC Championship game up in Minnesota, 11-point dogs, you know, then going home and spending the week in Atlanta before we finally flew out to Miami, you know, it was just I'd never felt like fandom like that and been on top of, you know, the sports world, and it was unbelievable. And then when we got down to Miami, everything was, you know, like everything from we get there and every one of us, every player had a rental car waiting in the parking lot for us. We had not only our big, huge suite at the hotel, but we had another a secondary suite that we could have for our families. You know, the biggest thing for me, my mom and dad came down. My, you know, my brother came out. He had, was with the San Francisco 49ers that year. We actually beat them to go to Minnesota to go to the Super Bowl. So we had our memories, you know, playing on the field against each other three times that year because we were in the same division. And then, you know, to have him down there, mom and dad, and I flew my agents out, get, got them tickets as well. And just, like I said, the, my, my biggest memory is the night, the day before the game, our final walkthrough. We had to get together. We're out there on the field. First time we'd seen the field, we were practicing that week at the University of Miami's facility. First time we'd seen the field, you know, our final walkthrough, and every blade of grass and every just spot of paint was just magnificent. And the field was pristine. And I remember we went and took our team picture, and then we had a little bit of time before we had to get out of there because the Broncos were coming in. And I remember like just going off to the side and I was, you know, I was sitting like kneeling on the field and just the thought of, Oh my God, I'm playing in a Super Bowl tomorrow. It was the most amazing oh, yeah. thing just to, you know, to, and then what happened is, you know, you're not paying attention. I'm actually looking at it right now. A photographer caught a picture of me with the Super Bowl 33 emblem in the background, just kind of kneeling in, in my thought. And that was later put in a paper in my hometown uh, it was an AP picture. They shared it back there. And I still have that memory. I'm looking at it right now of myself just pondering that moment, how, you know, just amazing, you know, and you start having those thoughts of, man, maybe I'll even catch a pass tomorrow. Now, you know, I'll be in the end zone. You know, you start thinking like a little kid, you start exactly. thinking the night before the big game, what the possibilities could oh, be. So, you know, it's just amazing. Like I said, even now, just the, the, the thought of it, it, it's just a, to have that experience and it wasn't, you know, wasn't given to me. I had to go take it, but that experience and just being a part of that and then still having some of my teammates that we all stay in touch and uh, to be able to talk about that is amazing. I hope, I hope radio row for me next year, wherever the Super Bowl is going to be next year. Maybe we'll see each other at, at radio row next year because again, it's actually, it's in Arizona. Actually it's here. Oh, wow. That'll be yeah. So yeah. I, and I'll be doing, I have my radio show, I've already planned. I'll be out there 
myself. So I definitely look forward to seeing you, Neil. We'll have to wow. do something next year for All sure. All right, Radio Row, Arizona. Here we go, Super Bowl. And maybe, <laughs> maybe somehow the Steelers. Well, Kenny Pickett can lead them. <laughs> that would be awesome. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Pitt fan as well, Ed. Okay. There you go. All right. All right. Go ahead, Chris, for your next question for Ed. I mean, it, it's just a fabulous story. I mean, like, he's overcome. Like, you know, like you said, incredible. And, um, and, and has transformed that into, you know, he to his heart is the motivational, inspirational speaking. And so, Ed, you know, talk a little bit about that. I mean, what, you know, what message, you know, are you trying to get across to young people and whether it's business executives or other leaders, you tell us what, what, what's the message you want to get across and you're speaking to people. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, I, you know, I consider myself a little bit of a, a, a chameleon because I have so many different type of stories that I like to share with my audiences. We, you know, whether you're talking about overcoming the incredible odds or chasing your dream, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I had so many people early in my life tell me, you got to go play football, you know, you got to go play football. And I chose to chase my own dream, you know, and then not giving up on that dream, but at the same time, knowing when it was time to pivot. So, you know, those type of messages. I also talk to uh, businesses about leadership and also about uh, team building. One of the things, one of my favorite programs that I put together, it revolves around team building and how, like, a, for instance, a sports team can resemble a business. And when I talk about that, you know, you think about any business, you got to have your CEO or ownership, you have to have your management, you've got to have your coach, and then your players. And then you can, I like to break it down even from there. In one of my uh, programs, I talk about how every, every business has got to have that franchise quarterback, you know, everybody, you every, you might have three or four people in the, your organization that think they're the franchise quarterback, but you can only have one and that one leader. And then you have your others, you know, like your, I break it down where you got your offensive linemen. Those sometimes can be your IT guys or the, the grunt guys. The only time you hear from them, uh, like in the NFL is when something goes wrong, if there's a flag, it's against the offensive lineman. That's the only time you're going to hear his name all through the, the day. And then, you know, you got your Swiss army tight end, uh, who can do it all. They can do sales. They can sometimes step in and be an IT guy. So those are, you know, that's just a few of the things I love to talk about. As far as the, the young kids, I, I try to encourage them to, one, chase their dreams, but also enjoy life as much as they can. I think with all this internet and different things and a lot of, like, they have shocks to their systems. They grow up so fast and they don't enjoy the the, the younger days of their lives. I look, my, you know, back at those Days like I mentioned earlier, my brother and myself running, you know, just wild through, uh, you know, the neighborhood and having fun like little kids. And, you know, and, and sometimes, like I said, these kids, they grow up too fast. But, you know, I just, you know, I encourage them, like I said, to chase those dreams, but also enjoy life, respect their parents. You know, not, not, it's not a lot of cliche stuff because I, I go deeper in, and into the stories. I use specific examples from my journey to match the audience I'm talking to, but I really enjoy, if you can't tell, I really enjoy it. And I enjoy sharing, uh, which is odd because I'm pretty much an introvert when it comes to you know, personality, <laughs> yeah. but I, you know, between all this radio and podcasts and speaking and, you know, it, it brings it out of me when I'm excited to, to talk about different things and, and get a specific message across to an audience. 
you know, and it's, it's about the whole thing of speaking in front of an audience, performing in front of an audience. Ed, you got the opportunity. I did as well. I was a former professional wrestler. So I one time did WWE where I got to be in front of 15,000 fans at Omaha Civic Center against Crush and Savia Vega. And I got some licks in, you know, I'm a legitimate 610. It was like a tryout match for me. <laughs> I've been in crowds of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 8,000, and maybe 50 in performing and wrestling. And I've gotten to speak in front of 100, 200, 300, 400 people, either virtually or in person. How much of a rush is there to provide in speaking in front of an audience and versus playing in front of 60, 80,000, 100,000 people? That's a good question, Chris. You know, the thing, the thing about, or a good question, Neil, the thing about speaking and I'll talk about playing in front of those crowds and you'll notice because you've done it before. It's especially when you're in a team environment, you're out there and you're trying to do your job. You try to focus it all out. So you're not necessarily looking, you're not focused on one person in the crowd. You hear the 70 plus either cheering for you or cheering against you. And I've been on both ends of that. And I remember going up to Minnesota for that NFC championship game in 98 and it was, or, you know, 98 season, it was unbelievable. I mean, at one point, you know, they got that big Viking horn and we're getting ready to kick off and they do that Viking horn. And and it's like, I couldn't, I actually couldn't even hear myself. I screamed at the top of my lungs and I couldn't hear myself over the noise. So it's, it's funny. You get out there and, you know, you just focus that out when you're speaking I don't care how big the crowd is. It could be 50. I've spoken, spoken in front of, you know, 10, 15, a hundred. And like you said, thousands, when you're speaking, all eyes are on you. And it's like, it's an entirely different rush because the focus is on you. And now, you know, you're challenged to perform, not in a group, but, and you know, you as a wrestler, you had someone you were wrestling against. So yeah. you were performing, but yeah. it was, it was exactly. still singing. Yeah. yeah. I, I ended up having to get heat with the crowd and focus on many people in the crowd. Yeah. But again, Ed, I'm a former college basketball player. So I played in front of 500 people. Yeah. 700 people, maybe a thousand people in the WPL finals. Uh, so I understand what you're saying. We're not focusing. You're just looking at all the noise not focusing on an individual person when you're speaking or when you're (laughs) doing something else. And Chris, don't you agree? It's basically, you really put your attention on an audience and that's, that's, I think that's more of a rush. Yeah, it can be, especially when you do it well, when you don't do it well, Neil, you know, because we've all had those bad days and it's like, Oh my. (laughs) Yeah. And and I, I saw that in clubhouse where I would have a thousand, you know, 500 people speak in front of 300, 400. And then one day it's like six. So you, yeah. you, you feel it in, in that virtual world as well. Or, you know, it just depends on what guests you're on a podcast or how much of an audience. It's all fun. All right, Chris, next question for Ed. Oh, no problem, you know. And um, so I wanted to ask Ed a little bit about just transitioning from professional sports back into uh, just like, I guess you would describe normal everyday life for, <laughs> for, for, for the normal average American. And kind of what, 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 what is that like? And, how would, what does it take for these professional athletes to make that transition successfully? Well, you know, that's a great question, Chris. And I remember when I was right around 2001, you know, it was time for me to hang the, the, the cleats up and I didn't want to hang them up. It was just a situation where I was 30, early thirties, you know, it's harder to find a job when, you know, they're looking for younger and cheaper in the NFL. And, you know, I finally got to a realization my last year 
uh, played in the XFL, actually, the original version of it in 2001. And after that, you know, the offers kind of just kind of went away. And it was one of those situations where, okay, I took a little bit of time off. And then I had to really figure out, okay, I'm 32, 33 years old. Where do I go from here? You know, what, what, what am I going to do? And fortunately for me, I had a background, you know, which was, I was blessed because my mother, especially, and my dad, it was all about education. It was never all about sports. It was all about being a better person. It wasn't about, you know, how many balls I could hit or catch or anything like that. So once I was done, I realized it took me a little time. You know, it took about a year, about six months to a year where, you know, I I felt like I'd earned a little bit of rest, you know, uh, just going to the gym a little bit, keeping the body in shape, uh, figuring out next moves and things like that. And one day, you know, I have things just happen sometime. One day a gentleman saw me in the gym and he recognized me from my day. I was still in Atlanta at the time and recognized me from being a Falcon and and uh, wanted to talk to me about getting into his business, which was financial planning. And I explained to him, hey, look, I've never done anything like that. But after talking to me, he, you know, he's like, look, your mind is what I'm looking for. You know, you and your, you know, what you could bring to the table. So, you know, I took a chance at that. I ended up getting licensed in all aspects. You know, I didn't take an easy way out. I went and got my series six, 63 life and health annuities. I was oh, fully, I was fully invested in being a financial planner, which was a good start into the corporate world, gentlemen. But after a couple of years, I didn't, I realized that's not what I necessarily wanted to do, but it was a good training episode for me because it got me away from sports and into the corporate world and then over the course of the next bunch of years you know it was kind of figuring this out figuring out like you know early 2000s uh eventually I settled on you know a few things in terms of uh, my life I I started uh, working in uh, the IT world I was a, a business development manager for a company which I still do to this day that's a industry I've still been in but then you know with extra time on my hand not dead, totally dedicated to, to sports, I started looking at other aspects, which in 2005, I had been encouraged so many times after people heard my story, the first thing they would always say, man, you need to write a book, you know? And I kept thinking, I don't have yeah, anything yeah, yeah. to say, you know? And eventually I heard it enough gentlemen and I went ahead and did it. My autobiography was, and which is something I personally wrote, was published in 2005. Uh, it's called Easy Does It, The Journey of a Lifetime. Uh, since then, uh, you know, I've, I've been in radio for 11 years, cel- I've just celebrated five years with my show, uh, Easy Sports Talk out here in Phoenix uh, back in March. I do the podcast, I believe in the Cardinals podcast. I guest host on other shows like yourself and others. I do ESPN spots. Uh, then I do the, the, the travel and speak as well. So uh, to, to answer your question, Chris, the transition was one that I think I was prepared for by my parents not making my entire life just about sports. You know, I knew yeah. there had to be a second chapter. Exactly. And I, there are a lot of, and you'll notice, Neil, especially, there are a lot of athletes when they're done, they have absolutely no idea, no idea. No idea. what the, what they're going to do or direction. And then some of them, they, they just, they can't get away from the fact that they're no longer being cheered on the field or they miss the crowd and you, there's no rush for standing out on the field Nothing I do in my business life is going to give me that rush of coming out of a tunnel on NFL Sunday. But if I take the same pride in what I'm doing, that's what it's all about. Exactly. All so right. yeah. I've learned that lesson, uh, you know, like I said, over the course of time. 
All right. So now we're going to jump to the podcast, Chris, and then Chris, we're going to have a final question. I got about a bunch of questions on podcasting. Ed, it's my experience. Okay. You started out in radio and you had your radio show. What made you want to do a podcast and kind of look at and kind of compare the, tr- the difference between radio and podcasting? Because if some of these athletes aren't able to really describe that, but it seems like your business acumen and understanding specific things, you really do see the differences between radio and podcasting. So I'm a dual thing. This is going to be on radio as well. I'm on syndicated radio and podcasting, and I have a television show. So I understand exactly the differences, but mm-hmm. kind of tell me why you decided to do a podcast first of all, and then tell me the difference between podcasting and radio. Well, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I started doing the podcast because I was approached by, you know, Believe and, and, and the, you know, what happens is you, you do different things like the radio and, and uh, you know, I was doing other people's shows and you, if you're good at it, then people recognize you. And I, I, I take that as a compliment that companies like Believe and some others have been adamant about, hey, we want you to be a part of what we do. For me, the difference in radio, because I started radio back in 2011, my own little show called Easy Sports Talk originally, which is the name of this show as well, but it was based on, it wasn't based on, you know, talking about specific teams or anything like that. I was, it was an hour show, Saturday nights, little small local station here in Arizona. I was talking about stories from my career, situations, you know, different things like that. And then I did that for almost two years and then took a break and then got involved with the NBC Sports Radio here, doing some different shows, uh, you know, guesting on them. And then my spot came open five plus years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. I took advantage of jumping on full time. For me, the difference in radio is it's a weekly kind of commitment where every Saturday from 10 to 12 out here, I've got to bring specific topics. You know, we, we follow the local teams and, you know, and, and the national stuff as well. But I've got to be up on everything local. I've got to deliver uh, entertainment. i got to be up. You know, the, the difference for me with podcasts is, one, it's the scheduling of them. You can kind of do them according to what your schedule is. Because, you know, I do the Believe podcast with my uh, partner, radio partner, and he's my uh, podcast partner. We do them like when the when like during the football season we do them every week. But right now we do them on a every other week basis, depending on what's going on with the Cardinals, and they have been giving to us with all the Kyler Murray news and stuff like that. But for me, podcasts a little. I'm not going to say they're they're. I'm looking for the word. I would say they're. You can be a little more ad living. Exactly. On the podcast. And you're yeah. not you're not controlled as much for yeah, sure. Exactly. Ah. They're they're less structured. So that's the perfect word to kind of to, to kind of describe them. Exactly. Chris, go ahead and uh tell us everybody, um, summarize Ed Smith. Chris, go ahead. Wow, with no problem. I mean, again, his vast experiences are, are really hard to summarize in a couple of sense, but I think we can say easy does it. The journey of my time. Um, he's given some great points, you know, to young people uh, and, and to people who are out there who, who need motivation, you know. Um, take on those incredible odds. Believe in yourself. Choose your dreams, okay? Love what you do, okay? And so, wow, we've just uh, had, a, had a great interview here uh, with one of our standouts, one of our great Americans. And so, wow, we're so excited. Uh, that you came on the show today. Thanks a lot. Man, I can't appreciate you guys enough. And anything I can do to to, to support you guys, let me know. I'll wow. definitely let everybody know about this 
uh, time on with you. But like I said, you guys are great, and I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it too, Ed. Best place we can go to listen to the Lead Podcast Network and it's available in all different podcasts. And where can we check you out, Ed? Best place social um, media-wise. Social media-wise on Twitter and Instagram at Ed Smith Speaks. And uh, if you want a copy of the book or if you want to just check out my website, it's edsmithspeaks.com. That'll tell you all about my story. Uh, there's a tab on there if you'd like to buy the purchase the book. And what happens is the books come directly from me and I sign every one of them individually when you uh, get them from the site. So that'd be a great way if you want to learn more about me, edsmithspeaks.com and uh, Ed, at Ed Smith Speaks on all platforms. All right. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you guys. All right. That was the Dr. Christopher Hall Show and Sports Category Director Neil Haley's Podcast Magazine. Guys, take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And, you know, I start thinking about this guest and, you know, as a former Pittsburgh and again, now I'm relocated in Texas, uh, going back and forth to Pittsburgh as well. My business is more in Texas. I start thinking about specifically enough this guy because I hear the radio all the time and everything. I never thought I'd have him on the show. Uh, but, uh, you know, I interview all these major celebrities, so I got to have a, a legendary Pittsburgh uh, entrepreneur. The uh, He's an author, speaker, Jim Shorkey. Jim, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. I mean it sincerely. I really I really am happy to be here. So thank you for inviting me. It's, 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 a, it's an honor. Oh, I thank you. I appreciate that. And, and we'll definitely, for the Pittsburgh people who know the name Jim Shorkey. Now, did you ever think that that name what people would know like if you go to pittsburgh and you say that name people know you and it's yeah. from brand recognition it's yeah. what it's what people all are trying to do as my agency works on is how to, to build a brand uh brand recognition through growing growing a tribe and a community you literally that name grew to where you are today so when you first started out jim shorkey how did you get that brand to where it is today it's amazing especially local we're yeah. talking locally and yeah well you know it's uh so so people say that to me a lot you know did you ever think this would happen that one? and truthfully i didn't i had no idea i was just trying to survive uh, my, my uh my my father died on uh, march 24th 1996 and you know if i knew i often say if i knew half as much as i thought i knew when my dad died i would have been pretty darn smart long story short started to run a business according to my ways my arrogance my know-it-all type of an attitude and ended up two years later, bankruptcy imminent, we weren't going to make it. We were going down. We were going out of business. And that was two years, two years after my dad died. Now to go back a little bit, my dad ran the business for 22 years. I mean, he owned a business for 20 years, I should say, and he ran it successfully. And here I am two years later, the heir apparent, the, the prodigy, so to speak, and it's, it's bankruptcy imminent. And it felt really, really bad, really awful, terrible, embarrassing, cried, the whole thing. And so, um, you know, I had to figure it out. And, and so I, I, what I, what I did after I finally bought him out is I went to, uh, to, I sought expert counsel, which was the advice I received from, from Napoleon Hill in a great book, Think and Grow Rich. Mm -hmm. And I, that's what I did. And I went to Mr. Hamilton, who was my dad's former partner. And I just asked him for a list of 10 things that I should be doing to be a successful automobile dealer. And he thought about that and said, well, let me think about it. Come back tomorrow. I'll have a list for you. So I go back the next day, get the list. And I started to execute that list. And Lo and behold, the needle started to move uh, just a tad, you know, so I kept doing it, moved a little more, and I went back for more information and kept moving and went to all these different sources, Chrysler Financial, GMAC, NADA, think tanks, et cetera, books, videos like what you're doing here, and just learned and learned and learned, and I just kept moving that needle, but the, the idea was not to build any kind of a brand. The idea was not to be, quote, Jim Shorkey. Jim Shorkey is just my name. That's who I am. 
but the idea was to survive and then to to prosper and and and, and actually I started to prosper and, and to, to make you know a lot of money but I was so afraid of going back to bankruptcy imminent that I just kept pressing and pressing and pressing so a lot of times people will say well you know you got to go after a goal and you, know, you want to go after the positive goal and all that and I do agree with that I think that's important but at the same time I think it's also important to very clearly identify what it is that you don't want what consequences you don't want and to uh really dwell on those as well and 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 most importantly is to figure out why why don't i want this what, what what does my reason why not make me cry and why do i want this does my reason why make me cry and so i really dwelled on those two things and then lo and behold the name jim shorty did become a household name only because we were pursuing the idea of selling cars making a buck getting out of the hole etc and it just kind of happened it wasn't like i'm going to make this a household name that was never my goal my goal was survival if that makes sense. That's a long answer to a short question. So it's a household name. Did you, the, the advertising, putting money into advertising, so you're getting probably different questions than you think because I'm thinking as a marketer, okay? I'm thinking as, okay, you're starting this, There, it's, it's a red ocean of different car dealerships and they all run TV commercial, radio commercials, but you kept surviving in that process in television, but you also, your name is synonymous in that, in the area because you kept growing. And you yep. said you talk about Napoleon Hill thinking grow rich, but what did you think about in the marketing end of things? So marketing your name and how you made your name a trusted name in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, and that's a, that's the thing. It's it's not a question of making it trusted as far as like it's not like an automatic thing. I had to, you know, we had to really figure out a way to give the best possible service that we could to every single client up front, you know, from the greeting of hi, how are you to the end product of selling a car and then servicing that car after the fact. And so we really worked very hard on taking care of the customer. So when a guy said to me years ago, and I'm talking probably 30 years ago now, said, don't ever advertise service unless you're willing to provide service. So we advertised what a great day. And this was a great place to come. And it was a great day. And we were enthusiastic and positive. And so if you think about what a great day, right? How can we say what a great day and then make it a bad day for the client, right? We can't, it, that's that's you're, you're, you're going to get smacked in the face every single time. You're going to say, wait, what about that? What a great day crap, you know? So we had to, you have to have a message and it has to be, you know, a tagline oriented message, which what a great day was and is, but at the same time, we had to deliver on that message of what's making it such a great day. And so we had to make it a great day for the client. And as that happened, what a great day became more of a, of an influencer along with the name Jim Shorkin, because that only happened because what, what my advertising agent, much the same as yourself. I mean, I'm a car salesman. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an advertising guy. So I'm not a marketing expert, but I do believe in expert counsel. And so when I decided to change directions uh, with the dealership in terms of how we were marketing back in 2004, I just had this intuitive sense that we needed to go a different direction. And we wanted to go more mainstream. We wanted to make Suzuki at the time a, a really top flight brand in terms of brand recognition. And so I brought in Frank Marmion, who's, who was, uh, it was my advertising agent, uh, uh, at, at a time and we parted ways and then he, I brought him back and I said, Hey, I want to change directions. And so what he did was he came in and he had a sandwich board and a couple different placards that he made. And it was all centered around this idea of what a great day. And he said, he said to me, cause I used to answer the phone. I got this from Zig Ziglar. I stand, my, my phone answering was what a great day. This is Jim Shorty speaking. And I'll say it in, in really the way I said, it. I was wow. like, what a great day. This is Jim Shorty speaking. Right. And I said that every time I answered the phone. So Frank Marmy says to me, you know, I always like the way you answered the phone. I think we can make this into a marketing message. And so what happened out of that was we, so we had the, 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 the logo and the, and it was all Frank designed all that. 
And right. then he's the expert. I'm just a guy. I'm, some, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit player at this point. So we had that, we had that message and, um, and we had a jingle, which was right. just repeated every time, every time, every time. Right. Yeah. And so, but we started to, so what, what Frank said was, hey, Jim, I always liked the way you answered the phone. And so he designed this thing around me answering the phone. So believe it or not, when we did the commercials, they actually were live commercials over the phone. I'd be sitting here like you and I are sitting here talking right now. And my sister would bring me the script and say, here it is. Frank's on line one. And so I would say, excuse me a second, Neil, I got to go do this commercial. I literally got so good at it that I could leave this right now, go through the commercial, having never seen the, the script. And I do it in five minutes, one take, we're done. And so it was a script and, uh, and, and, or how do you say, it? is it a script? Yeah, script, the script, some sort of script or, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyways, I'm from Pittsburgh. We don't pronounce things the right way. So you know that. But anyway, yeah, I know so, that. <laughs> yeah. so uh, I, uh, anyways, they would hand me the, the script and I would just, and I would ad lib per se to a degree, but yeah. all lines would get so good, but it really was designed to be visceral from the gut, extemporaneous sounding. I'm just answering the phone. What a great day. This is Jim Shorty speaking. Frank Marmion's on the other line. He actually was on the phone and say, Jim Shorty. I heard you're giving away Suzuki's this week. What in the heck is going on? Yes, yeah, yeah, I remember oh. always driving. I almost always driving into specific things or on commute and listening and hearing that. And see, and you're reminding me because honestly, yeah. I know the name, but now it's all coming back to me again. <laughs> and great. I hear it all the That's time great. when you're in Pittsburgh. It's yeah. it's such a big thing. So let's kind of look at you, you, you in a lot of ways looking at Napoleon Hill and all that stuff. You trusted this, right? I did. It yeah. felt right for you. And that's yeah. part of your success, right? You knew that what you treated your customers, if that could be marketed yes. to which the days of television and radio, which are not anymore, those days are gone. I mean, they still, people still think it, it, they're good, but I, I'm sure more and more brand recognition of where people are going now is changing. It and is, it, absolutely. It's completely. And but you came in at a time where you had a tagline. We all know Pittsburgh somehow has, because I go in other cities and I listen, they don't have brand recognition. Somehow Pittsburgh doesn't. There are a few guys out there like you that have this brand recognition that you can walk out through town and they'll know it. I don't know. It must be a Pittsburgh thing, right? You think of what a great day. You think about specifically enough Edgar Schneider. You think of just certain people in this town a Pittsburgh yeah. for people that are in Pittsburgh that are watching this on Pittsburgh TV and listening to this and saying, Oh my gosh, I'm interviewing this guy. The <laughs> fact is that's it. And that is a brand. This is the thing I try to tell my clients. I have to tell everybody once people know you for some reason and they have brand recognition, they're going to buy from you more than the person who does not have brand recognition. No question. No question. It's the bottom line was, did you, do you feel that that was the way to grow your empire in Pittsburgh, meaning your car empire is yeah. this mantra? I to, yeah. yeah, I have to say no. I have to say no to that because what happened was, again, I wanted to change direction. And so I had learned from Napoleon Hill this idea of Seacash per Council. I did it with Mr. Hamilton. I did it with Chrysler Financial. And I knew how well it worked. So I can I can recall the conversation exactly. I said to Frank Marmy and I said, hey, um, I'm a car salesman. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, same thing I'm saying right now. I said, I'm, not, I'm not an advertising guy. I said, so what you're saying makes sense, but I don't know. I said, if it works, we'll keep doing it. Well, guess what? It worked and it kept working. It always works. We never changed. We never changed the formula. It just kept working. And, and, and again, to, to make it clear, I'm not an expert. I'm really not. 
I just study experts. And that's the difference between me and a lot of people is I study experts. You they go, say, well, that's, that's the top entrepreneurs. Bottom line, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. Go, they go to the best. They go to the sure. best person in each area and they grow from them. Let's think about, you know, uh, Richard Branson. Yeah. He seeks the top people in every area. He's not thinking he's the expert. He delegates it to the right people. That's successful entrepreneurs. They don't aren't the constant, I'm doing everything myself. I'm going to other people. And that's exactly. very interesting when you look at Napoleon Hill and the successful ones study the thought leaders. They study the thought leaders all the time. And I am looking at work. That's an improvement. I'm looking at self-improvement. It's looking more and more at the thought leaders. Luckily, I have some counsel of people who tell me about everyone's thought leaders and I have like almost like a photographic memory and I remember someone saying something or because I interview such amazing people like yourself, I'm able to go back and say, oh, let me quote this or do that. Seeking <laughs> counsel. That's cool. That's so cool. you went and looked at those thought leaders and that's how you built and said, here are my mistakes I was making. Now, this is who I'm going to bring in the right people in every area of the business to make it a success, it sounds like. Correct. Right? Right. And, and so, you know, I believe I'm a very big believer in uh, my to not do list. So I go to expert counsel and I say, well, here's the things I'm doing. I say, oh, wait a second. Number four, five and six, you got to stop doing that. And sometimes the stop list is way more effective than the go list. Right. And so I, I actually accumulated or I created both. Like I had a go list, I had a stop list. Right. So here's the 10 things I got to do. Here's the 10 things I got to stop doing. And if I'm doing stupid stuff, what's going to have more of an impact? The stupid stuff that I stop doing or the good stuff I start doing? I would venture to say that it's the stupid stuff that I stop doing that's going to move me quickest to the, to the goal. But the interesting thing about it is I don't have to choose, uh, but I do have to do both. I really believe that. So if I want to be healthy, I got to eat healthy food, but I got to stop eating unhealthy food. Right. And there is, there is a lot to that. So what I, what I did with Frank was I, I, I told him, Frank Marmion, I told him point blank, I said, Frank, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a car salesman. I want to sell more cars. Here's what I want to do with Suzuki. And, uh, and so if it works, we'll keep doing it. And I really did delegate that responsibility to Frank. And he ran the whole deal. I did nothing. I got this. Like I said, he handed me the script. I read the script. I mean, anybody could have done what I did in terms of the script reading and all that. Now, maybe other people would take more time because they're not like, I mean, I've been selling cars since I was, you know, I was born between two bumpers, right? right? So I can speak very well. And, and you know better than anybody, this is not a scripted conversation. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. No clue. I have no notes. You didn't send me any questions. And you're I impressed by me. I, this is all my head. This yeah. is not, that's yeah. how I, so I prefer that. You know, so, so, so we're not speaking from any kind of a plan. I, I have no idea what your next question is, and I will answer to the best of my ability. But that said, with, with Frank, I delegated that to him. It kept working. And I really do believe, here's what I believe. I believe anybody can seek expert counsel. Just find some. If you're the smartest guy in the room, if you're the smartest girl in the room, you're in the wrong room. You mm. got to get out of that room. And you got to get, you gotta get to, to where you're the dumbest person in the room, the poorest person in the room whatever the case may be, whatever you're working on, but you want to get around people that are way better than you and then just start asking questions and take a blank piece of paper with you and just write things down. And it's like amazing, like, wow, that's a really good idea. Of course it is. The guy's a multi-billionaire. He's got all kinds of good ideas. So I started taking these good ideas and putting them into play, taking the bad ideas and pulling them out of play. And, and over time, I just kept getting better and better and better. And it went from one dealership to two to three. When I left, it was six. I'm retired. Uh, so I retired in 2016. But here's, here's a really interesting thought about this, which your viewers may really appreciate about branding. So I left at six dealerships and um, 
roughly, I'd say around 350 employees. When I started, it was 40 employees, um, one dealership selling about a thousand cars a year. When I left, it was selling probably about 5,000 cars a year, roughly. Well, now that same dealership group sells over 25,000 cars per year, and it's 17 dealerships, and I'm not involved. It's my children own that business, and my children and my brother own that business independently of myself, 100%. I have no involvement whatsoever, but there's the legacy. There's the there's what happens with this kind of stuff is that it just keeps going on as long as they follow the principles, which is find somebody smarter than you and have a conversation. When you want to, when you want to do something, you know, that people say that, or no, it's a scientific fact. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Right. That straight line is seek expert counsel. And, and even with seek expert counsel, there's going to be some, some sense of a circuitous route, but the absolute worst thing you can do and, and, and audience you want to write this one down trial and error is a recipe for disaster do not do trial and error the trials take way too long when your bankruptcy imminent there ain't there ain't no more take too long right you have to act fast wow. so trials are too long and the errors can be devastating and if i had made an error back when i was bankruptcy imminent i'm gone i don't make it so i couldn't do uh uh uh, trial and error, and I don't recommend it. Even with, like I said, seeking seek expert counsel, there is some sense of trial and error because your, your expert may make a, a recommendation which doesn't fit your mold, exactly. but most of them will. So you have to do some sense of trial and error. But believe me when I tell you this, if you do trial and error, it might take you 10 years to get to where you want to get to, if you get there at all, versus if you do seek expert counsel, you'll get, you'll get there in a year, two years, that kind of a thing. It's just way faster. So. I see. I like that idea. How do you seek expert counsel without paying for it, or you're going to have to pay for it? What are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, interestingly enough, so the fellow that I went to initially was Mr. Hamilton, and there you go with the trust and the knowing. Mr. Hamilton was my dad's former partner. He was um, a very successful automobile dealer, uh, had, the, had the cars, the boats, the houses, the whole thing, and I knew that he was, he, was, he was wealthy. He was very successful, and so I knew that I could go to him, number one. I knew that I could trust him, and so that's what I did. And so that was free. Right. And then I, uh, so, and I kept going back and it was always free. You know, uh, I think he even bought lunch, right. Cause I had no money. <laughs> so anyways, Mr. Hamilton was a great resource, but from that, I learned so much about seek expert counsel that I then reached out to uh, Chrysler financial, which is, which was the financial arm of, um, of Jeep at the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Jimmy Lawn came in with a, with a, with some people and asked me some questions, which clearly indicated that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was very obvious. And, so he actually brought in a team of auditors to audit my books and give me a, um, a roadmap to follow. Well, that audit would probably be, probably at that time have been 25, 30 grand to get that done. They did it for free, absolutely free. And you know, I have to say my dad uh, was in the business for 22 years when he died and, or he was the owner. He was in the business for, geez, probably 36, 37 years when he died, but he had a lot of good friends. And so those friends, it wasn't like I called in any favors. I just called and said, I need help. And they came in and they did, did this for free. Right. And, and again, we're talking, you know, 25, 30 grand bill to have a full uh, books, uh, right. you know, a financial statement on it. And then they came back and did it again a year later, again, all free. And talk about a list of advice. It was just unbelievable. GMAC, uh, Jim Kacharski, a good friend of my dad's, uh, I, I asked for, for help. He sent me um, a, a four. They were actually VHS tapes. You're too young to know what those are, but with VHS tapes and, and with workbooks on how to be a successful car dealer, how to be a successful car dealer. I tore those things up. Um, I joined uh, uh, think tanks that did cost money. I went to training classes that did cost money. Uh, I went to um, uh, NADA was a, was is a, a, a group 
uh, thing for automobile dealers. So I did some different things that did end up costing money. But initially, GMAC, Chrysler Financial, uh, and um, uh, Mr. Hamilton, and also Al Lazar, who was my banker, also very helpful uh, to me. And this was all free. And they were very gracious. And they were all friends of my dad's. And and um, I think that was a part of the, the, the thing. But, you know, what I found about truly successful people, uh, you're going to talk to 10 successful people. Nine will say yes, one will say no, and you just move on from the no. Wow. But these, these successful people love to mentor people like me. And as long as I show an interest and I don't, I got to show up early and I got to be ready with, and I got to be a student, right? And I've got to be very willing to listen and learn and, and execute, right? And they take a lot of pride. Mr. Hamilton took a lot of pride in the success of Jim Shorty because he felt that uh, he was uh, responsible for that. And he was, he absolutely positively was. So I think that the successful people kind of feel like they have a, uh, an obligation to do that. I know I do. I, I decided back in 2001 that I couldn't take all the credit for my success. I knew I couldn't because yeah. I had so many Mr. Hamilton's out there. So I decided that someday I was going to do the same thing. And that's why I'm here today. Uh, this is what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm retired. But I, I, I think if I took my knowledge to the grave with me, I think I would be amongst the most selfish people in history. And I'm just not going to do that. So uh, I have a message. I know how to be successful. I know how to teach people to be successful. And that's what I'm, that's my goal today is to teach people exactly. how to win, how to be successful at whatever it is that they want to be successful at. So you take all your knowledge, all your, and your success, you put together that plus the together, and now you're doing it again. So you wrote a book, right, Jim? So talk about the book. And uh, I, I'm going to take the idea of seek expert counsel, and I'm going to take initiatives in the next couple of weeks to say, okay, who am I going to get with that is much larger than I am where I'm going and how yep. I can get with them? Because I have the tools and the tool shed. I can reach out to anyone in the world because of my show. And this is the thing that people have to understand. If you have a podcast, you have a radio show, you have a television show, you can become a successful business owner or entrepreneur because ultimately you can get to the right people because it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people. So let's talk about your book now. So yeah, the book is, is just a story of what happened. You know, like I said, my, and I, I just a quick synopsis of 19, my dad died on March 24th, 1996. So that's a clear day to me. If I knew half as much as I thought I knew when my dad died, I would have been really, really smart. The fact is I had no clue. Um, the expert counsel came to me. I turned it down. That's how arrogant I was. Mm. So my dad was part of a think tank. And one of the deals with the think tank is they will send in a team of members from the group to run the dealership alongside you while you're going through this transition period. Because having a father die, the founder of the company die, is a really, really big deal. Guess what I did? I resigned. I got this. I don't need your help. I didn't, I wasn't rude that way, but I just, I got, I resigned from the group and I went on and did my own thing two years later on bankruptcy imminent. And, um, and, and that's a, that's a story in and of itself. I mean, I get a, I get a call from my sister tomorrow morning when we open up the dealership, the bank account's going to be a negative $55,000. Never forget that. Mm. Meaning check, checks are going to bounce. So I mean, needless, needless to say, I didn't sleep that night. I went to the, to the, to the bank the next morning. I was there before they opened up, I think 730 in the morning, they weren't even open. And I told El Lazar I would meet him there and he came out and greeted me and we went in and he assured me that the checks wouldn't bounce. And I want to be clear about this. I really didn't feel like those were my checks. I felt like that were, those were my dad's checks and that was my dad's name. And how could I let this happen? Right. So I was so embarrassed, so sad, sad for my dad. I didn't want my dad's legacy to be bankruptcy. That would have 
been what it, what it was. That would have been his legacy. In essence, I mean, he runs for 20 years, two years later, two years later, it's gone. I couldn't yeah. accept that, right? So I was very sad, very upset. And that's why I'm a very big believer in the idea of, I, I like to be, I like to dial into my fears. I like to dial into my, 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 uh, my bad moments and, or, or I even predict future bad moments. Like I think about, you know, for example, some sort of a chronic uh, disease. I think about that, like, okay, what can I do to prevent, delay, mitigate that, right? So anyways, 